We are creating a platform for those who are curious, one that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is the Working Artist Project. Today's guest doesn't actually need an introduction, but I'm going to give a short one anyway. So today we have the one and only Jason Marsalis. This episode is one that is all-encompassing if you're a musician and very interesting if you are not one. Jason and I talked about New Orleans, New York, family, business, his time with Marcus Roberts. We talked about mastery, which is a concept that I personally think is looked over in American culture. And, uh, you know, this this is a good one, and and you guys are really going to like it, so... Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I want to welcome the one and only Jason Marcellus to the Working Artist Project. Good afternoon. How's everybody? Yes, indeed. So, you know, everybody knows you, man. So I, I want to get right into... Well, most, but, or some. <laughs> I don't know about everybody. Everybody. You know? every, every, fuck it, man. Everybody knows you. <laughs> sure, there's some folks somewhere in Wisconsin that are like, who? Right. But anyway. <laughs> they got Google, so by the end of this conversation, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll hit the Google button and see what's happening. Well, yeah, you can do that. Okay. So I want to start kind of, I want to talk about New Orleans Mm -hmm. versus New York. Sure. And just in how those two things intersect and why they're important for each other and how they oppose each other. Yeah. So what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, Let's see. First, um, I have to admit that um, I have a very interesting perspective on this being a member of the Marcellus family. Okay. Okay. And, and you know, I usually don't you know claim that as for anything special but in this one case i feel that it is okay uh and it's because of this uh we if we start with my father with ellis marcellus pianist um he born in new orleans uh but when he came up uh he was interested in more of the quote-unquote modern music of the day Uh, now new orleans is a city that is known and still to this day or more of the traditional styles, the people mm-hmm. in the vein of Louis Armstrong and Jello Roe Morton, Sidney Bechet, and uh, the various brass bands and etc. like that style. Right. Uh, so when, when, when Dad was coming along, uh, he was more into the, the, the music of the Charlie Parker, Miles Davis generation. And, you know, and so, and, and there's, a, there's actually a funny, there's a picture, it's an interesting, like, uh, almost like a trivia moment. There's this picture of an advertisement of the Marcellus Mansion, and oh. that was a mansion that uh, that that my grandfather, his father, owned uh, oh, okay. back when this was when things were very segregated, and and if you were black and needed a place to stay, and you were in the New Orleans area, that's where you went. But man, there's this ad for the Marcellus Mansion, and there's this this baby that's holding this album, and it turns out the baby is Branford. Right, wow. okay. so I was so you know so, but then I'm, I was like, man, I wonder what album that is, and I looked close, and the album was Clifford Brown and Max Roach live at Basin Street, 
Wow. <laughs> so he's holding this album in his hand, and he's probably, I don't know, eight months or something, or a year, or, you know. Uh, but point being, that was what my father was into, like the Clifford Max Band, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk. And and so and so, when he uh, started to make records uh, in New Orleans, th there was these albums that was produced by Harold Batiste, um, you know, and they formed AFO Records, and you know they had the the American Jazz Quintet, um, and the music they were playing was more in the mode of uh, of the more in the mode of like bebop sort okay. of music. Not yeah. that it was that specifically, but it was in that vein. And uh, so in New Orleans, you would have musicians that were interested in that, but there was almost no audience for that. Uh, in fact, uh, on a side note, uh, the, you know, Dookie Chase, the, uh, mm -hmm. the the late Dookie Chase, you know, he passed away about, uh, I think, last year. Uh, you know, well, Dookie Chase, you know, who owned the restaurant, well, you know, he used to have a big band. And... I only I don't know a lot about it. Uh, from what I understand, I think the drummer Vernell Fournier, who's from New Orleans and played with Ahmad Jamal, I think he was in that big band. That was actually a bebop kind of big band, like in a, like it's sort of in the, in the vein of like a Dizzy Gillespie kind of band, right, like right, that. Right, but right. there wasn't much of an audience for that in New Orleans at that time. And so, you know, so so you have my father playing the stuff with American Jazz Quintet, and then his own album called Monkey Puzzle with a with drummer James Black and Nat Perlat and and that music was very very progressive music in 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 a lot of ways very shocking in fact I remember when I first heard it I was really I was 10 years old when I first heard that album and I actually understood enough to realize that this was for the early 1960s very revolutionary you had James Black with all these odd meter tunes and tunes with mixed meter and I'm like wait wait this is like 20 years before you know, some of the music went and ended up doing that had mixed meter thing, but this is like right, right. twenty years before that. Uh, but at the time, there was there was just no they weren't a lot of gigs for them, and there was no audience for it. Um, and so, you know, he comes up, you know, in the sixties and in the seventies, and it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a struggle. I mean, he was. I mean, when they were coming along, it was a bit of a struggle in terms of just him trying to make a living and trying to figure out because uh, there just wasn't. There just, there just wasn't really an audience for what it was he was doing. Now he did get some other sort of gigs, right. but uh, man, I mean, in the seventies, you know, things he did get. You know, I mean, he started teaching, and then he got eventually he started teaching at Noka and uh, and so forth. So you know, I mean, things got better over time, uh, but it was a bit of a struggle. Now what happens is, uh, you know, my, my father always wanted to go to New York because I mean, at that time. That was where all the stuff was going on. I mean, all the music that he was into, that's where those guys were. And so when you get to someone, so when you get to my older brother Wenton, he moves to New York, and then his career takes off, like, almost immediately. Mm -hmm. I mean, he arrives there in 1979, and then all of a sudden, like, word is starting to spread around the city about him. I mean, already, and by, like, I think by, like, spring of 1980, he's in Art Blakey's band. That's 1980, and then somewhere in 1981, I'm not sure when, he somehow gets signed to CBS Records. And I don't know whose idea this was, but he gets signed to CBS Records, 
and then CBS hooks him up with Herbie Hancock. And it, I mean, this is like within like two, three years, all this is going on. Um, and so, and so then he makes his first record and it sells a bunch. And of course, I'm leaving out a lot of details, right, right. but I think that what happened was, I think when, when those things were happening, there was a tendency to have a very negative attitude towards the city of New Orleans. Ah, okay. Because, you know, and I can understand it. I mean, you know, dad struggled for all those years and then went and comes up there and boom, things are just taken off. And, and, you know, and then eventually Branford follows him and then Branford, then he's got a record contract and he's in Blakey's band that he, you know, I mean, all this stuff is like just moving quickly. Uh, and so I think for them, they're like, oh yeah, New York, this is where it's at. Yeah. yeah. New Orleans, they, they ain't got nothing going on down there. You know, this, this is, this is where it's at. Uh, and so, and so, I mean, the eighties, I was, so there was just a lot of things that they were doing that, uh, my, that my father really hadn't had a chance to do. Now, by the time that I came along, uh, both New Orleans and New York changed. I think that for me, I would have to say that I had a more positive experience being in New Orleans as a musician than they did. I mean, theirs was okay. Okay. I mean, I think, I mean, there, I mean, there were things that they, not, not that nothing happened, right, not right, saying right. that, but especially for playing the music that we were playing, uh, it, and I think that I probably had a better experience because uh, fast forward to the late 80s, like 1989, uh, you know, my father, we lived in Richmond, Virginia for three years. And really, there wasn't really any kind of scene at all then. I mean, he taught at Virginia Commonwealth University, but there was no kind of scene. So in 89, we moved back to New Orleans and and so when we get there, you know, dad starts, you know, working at Snug Harbor, which he had done before, but, uh, you know, he starts to get a consistent night there. Then he starts teaching at the University of New Orleans. Uh, but then, uh, and this is one difference, at least for me, uh, there was a, a, a jam session that was held at Tipitina's. I think that might have been the summer of 90. I think it was the summer of 1990. And so... It was an interesting jam session because it was like all ages. It was really for young people, but anybody could come and sit in. And like you'd have, you know, I think this old bass player, Richard Payne, ran the session, I think. But you'd have kids who was probably had been playing for like two months who could barely play. But, yeah, go ahead and sit in. And then you'd have dudes going to UNO, coming to sit in. And then meanwhile, you'd have high school cats. Uh, and I mean, some of the guys who were at that session are guys who are musicians now, such as Nicholas Payton, oh, wow. such as Clarence Johnson and Davel Crawford. And, uh, you know, and a whole, you know, and my father would, we, we would go there and uh, check it out. But I think for me, there were all these young players, like lots of them trying to play this music. And so you have that going on. You have, uh, you have my father, of course, he's working more. And uh, now, you know, he, of course, now has a recording contract himself, but he's making records. So when I was coming along, New Orleans, it was a very different thing. Right. And I'm playing drums, so I'm able to play with him. And right. Right. in fact, uh, I was working with him and I was working with Delphio and my, my, another brother who's playing. He also had gigs in New Orleans that he had. Uh, and 
So there was a, there was a lot going on, uh, like just musically speaking for me. Um, and so, um, so I think that for me, I, it was a very, it was a very different experience. I think for me, I, and I think that's why I may view New Orleans, you know, in a more positive light for some, because that's what it was that I was seeing. Now at that same time, though, uh, it was in 1990-91 where if we want to go back to New York, a lot of what we call the jazz legends, like the real sources, a lot of those people died within two years. And it was like marquee names, you know, like, uh, let me see, Dizzy Gillespie was one, uh, Sarah Vaughn was one, Ella Fitzgerald was one, Art Blakey was one, um, and I think Stan Getz was one, and so, and there were some others. Miles, Miles Davis, that was one. It was like a lot of these like legendary people like died within a few years. And I remember even then thinking to myself, man, like a lot of the like tradition up there in history is like has kind of left. And I knew then like, man, New York is going to be something different. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's changing. It's going to be something else. Uh, And so um, I think that as I was coming along, uh, um, I think my my view of New York was a little different because uh one I had been in and out of New York a lot even as a kid like I'd visit New York or I'd be there for something right uh, so I think that the the allure of the sort of the special aspect of New York wasn't really the same for me it had worn off just from, from yeah. yeah it just wasn't the same it it wasn't you know, now I can understand with Quentin and Bradford. I don't. I don't think they were ever in New York growing up. I don't think they ever went until, until <laughs> 1979 when he had. To, and then all of a sudden, all this stuff happens. Yeah. But with me, I'd either visit or even the years we lived in Richmond, Virginia, we would drive to New York and visit Bradford and Brooklyn. Visit Quentin. He was in Manhattan, and so I think as I got older, like the allure of New York wasn't the same. Now it was still great scene. And it was still great stuff happening. Um, now, I think for me, what I saw was a big transition because uh, as I graduated high school in the mid in 1995, and and I was working with pianist Marcus Roberts, and I, that's when I started to see things change. Uh, like, for instance, um, all of a sudden, the, at, in the 90s, it was a big time for young musicians because there were these major record labels that would sign these artists and some of them even weren't that great if I had to be honest, because they were just handing out all kinds of contracts to people for better and worse. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden that started to dry up. Okay. Like the majors weren't signing as many people and, or a lot of people were getting dropped. And I could see that, uh, you know, that, that, that the music on majors was kind of shrinking and the support was shrinking. And uh, in fact, one of the more odd things that happened to me was um it was in i think it was i think between 98 99 somewhere in there uh i was i had joined this band los hombres calientes it was a band based out of new orleans <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and so you know i remember we released this record i think it was the second album we released this record and at the same time you know and it was for basic street records local label independent label in new orleans and at the same time, I'd made a record with Marcus Roberts called In Honor of Duke, uh, which was, it was an original suite that he dedicated to Duke Ellington for the Ellington Centennial at the time. 
And that was on Columbia Records, but nobody had heard it. Damn. Wow. It was it was weird. It was like very few people had heard it. Very few folks knew the album was out. Uh it wasn't and it, it was and <laughs> that was just a strange thing to see, you know, and this is on a major label. And I think after I saw that, um, now at the same time, like the, the Ombres thing is getting like, now mind you, that music is a little more mainstream. Right, of course. But still, it was, you know, the band was, was touring and, you know, it was getting a lot of attention. And it was just weird to see this album that was on this major label get like no attention. And I think that for me, I started to think to myself, yeah, I think that, I think New York is the big time might be over. <laughs> that might be ending uh, soon. <laughs> so, and because, uh, like, because for them, and I mean, like my older brothers, that was the view of it because, heck, when they went to New York, that was the big time. They were able to get a major record deal and go on these tours and, you know, have a national presence. And so they could not have done that stand in New Orleans. They had to go to New York to do that. But by the late nineties, that was starting to change where, where like, I think that prominence was, was this, the things that major labels would do was just sort of, that was just sort of evaporating, you know, now, now with now that's withstanding i mean there's a lot of other stuff changing with business and right. all of that internet you got all these other technologies coming in so people yeah. don't necessarily have to be in new york city to yeah, yeah you have that going on so there were a lot of things that 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 started to change um and so that's why i think for me that's why i was saying that it's just interesting you know being in the marcellus family to see those things to see that change happen yeah. you know from from my father's day from the time he was playing in the town and my brothers was playing from the time that I was playing. Now, um, I, now the, the, the one thing that did happen was that there were a lot of changes that started to happen in the music and, and some of them were okay. A lot of them, I'll admit, I wasn't the biggest fan of, uh, but, and I became very critical of it and very outspoken, but I think, we, we I think then we entered a very odd stage where I think music started to become like this, I don't know, like this niche market mm-hmm. where even music in New York, New York didn't really feel like the big time. It's a big city, right. but it didn't feel like the big time because now it's like a lot of people I know aren't really following the music anymore. Ah, okay. Like they're not, you know, like... Like, I mean, I've had a lot of outspoken opinions, but what I realized is if you don't know the newer music, those opinions don't make sense. And I started realizing that a lot of folks I know, they didn't know what was going on. Uh, like the fact that, honestly, a lot of the, the element of swing was was being de-emphasized and you weren't hearing as much of that in the music. Uh, and there's a, there's a there was a way that guys would write tunes and that there were... And I, what I realized, people around me, they didn't know these things were going on. Uh, but uh, so, uh, so you know, then that's a whole other thing. Now, I think that with both cities, with New Orleans um, and New York, I think that uh, that the differences, uh, I think the similarities is that they're both, they are certain kinds of, uh, they represent music, like certain mechanisms of music right. in their own way. Right. Uh, now, 
one statement that I've made about New York that's a very controversial statement, but I'm going to say it anyway, and people disagree <laughs> with it immediately. Okay. But I'm going to say it anyway. Right. It's that New York is a place that does not have its own music. Now, the minute you say that, immediately guys are like, well, wait a minute, what about this? Well, no, no. Well, how could you, you know, they get all defensive, like, wait, how dare you? But here's what that means. Okay. Um, if you look at a place like New Orleans, um, you know, you had music that formed there. Like the, you had all those different cultures of people, whether it was people from, because really it's the northernmost Caribbean city. So whether you got, you know, folks from Africa or folks from Cuba or folks from Brazil, or and then you've got, you know, folks from France. And you, have, you have all these cultures that are coming in. And, I, and so I think that when you have that, it sort of creates this, you know, this music and these things that change and, uh, and ways of playing the beat or ways of interpreting music start to change. And so New Orleans is a place that's home of, of uh, traditional music. And the thing about it is that that music still goes on and it always went on. It, it has been there for, you know, about a hundred years and it's still going on. Uh, now, a place like New York, uh, the, the, the reason that I say it doesn't have its own music is that they didn't have music that was necessarily like born in indigenous folk music to that town. Gotcha. But I don't, that's not what it is. You know, New York, that's another kind of melting pot of all these folks that are from these areas. But uh, so, you know, New Orleans, you have folks from different areas, but, it, but eventually it settles in and you get people from there. New York, it's all these folks from all over the place, from all over the. But you don't get a lot of people that are necessarily born in New York, especially with playing the music. Mm-hmm. And now here's the thing: music develops in New York. That's the thing. Right. That's why I say it doesn't have its own music. Music it develops there. So even if you have a music that starts in New Orleans and forms it, when it goes to New York, it develops. Right. You know, it changes. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that New York, one. New York tradition is looking for the next thing. I mean, and I, I can say that that's a tradition because even when Jello Roll Morton came to New York, I think it was like, I think maybe it even been in the 30s. Even then it was, he, that was considered old because no, we're on to Fletcher Henderson and, and, and Duke Ellington. No, you're playing old style. <laughs> it's just like, okay. So it's always like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Uh, and so like a place in New Orleans, like that's not, has that's not like a, a major concern. Mm-hmm. I mean, a place like there, like for instance, uh, whenever they have the Mardi Gras celebration, right. you don't hear anybody saying, "Yeah, could we hear like some new music?" I mean, <laughs> you know, that Professor Longhair, that's old. We've already right. heard right. that. I mean, can we have like a new? No. Right. Yeah. Oh, we've already heard second like. Hey, could we? I mean, we need something new. You're not going to hear that because it's a music that's a part of a culture right. and a part of a, a celebration. Uh, but in a place like New York, it's always, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And so you've had music developed there. So that's how you have, you know, music that goes from, um, you know, from Louis Armstrong to Duke Ellington to someone like, you know, Lester Young or Ben Webster and then Charlie Parker or the, and then John Culture. And it's, it just keeps uh, it keeps changing, you know, and it keeps moving forward. But but I think that's the nature of that city. That's the nature of New York. And so that's why I say that it doesn't have its own music. But you, you've had music develop. You've had music develop there. 
And I think the, those are the I think I think those are the two differences. But I think the point is is that they both have music to learn from. Right, right. They both have music to learn from. I think that, and it's important to understand that there are things that you can get from that you can get from either place. Uh, one last thing that I would say is that um, I think that sometimes there's even there's even misunderstandings about even a place like New Orleans. Because you have people that still think that like all they play is traditional right. down I think there. It's still 1932 in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. like that. Still, <laughs> you know. And one, I would say that uh, even though the style has changed, it doesn't sound like 1930. Right. A, a musician, a musician, trumpet player told me about. Uh, he was an older trumpet player. He told me about when he played at the jazz fest in the 1970s. He was real young then, and he sat next to this real old player and he said man he told me that this guy didn't play anything past 1929 and he said that was the strangest thing i ever experienced in my life but what it let me know was how even though he played a traditional there's this other music that he's heard like he he wasn't only playing this one thing uh, now you got some folks who do that but they're that that's most don't honestly right. most have heard uh, other thing, and I think that's a part about traditional music that's not understood, is the fact that it does move forward even if the music and the style is the same. Hmm. Uh, like for instance, if you hear, and I'll give you an example, if you hear any video, any recording of like a band from the '30s, like 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 the was it like the original Tuxedo Jazz Band, like if you hear them in the '30s, uh, when I think was it Papa Celestine, I think was leading that band. Now, when you hear them in the 60s, and there's a great video that's up. In fact, I know the guy that put it on YouTube. In fact, he showed it to me, and I told him, Man, you, you need to put that on YouTube right yeah. now. <laughs> but if you hear them in the 60s, it's, it's like a lot more modern. Hmm. They're playing trap, but it, it, it doesn't sound like the 30s. It just doesn't. And a lot of it was those guys were hearing newer things. In fact, the trumpet player also had done some gigs with Ray Charles. Oh, wow. And Oh, yeah. And... You know, even some of the things that the drummer plays, you know, um, even though he's playing in the traditional style, some of it sounds more in the bebop vein. Mm -hmm. Like, so there's other music they've heard. Right. Uh, and so I think that's one part of traditional music that, that's misunderstood. When you hear guys now, it sounds like now. Right. It doesn't sound like 1930. Like, of course. And if you get recordings from 1930, you'll see that. So that's one point. And the other point, which you've experienced this being down there, is... You have folks that still think that that's all that happens. So when they hear something in a more modern style, they're like, man, I didn't know guys played like that down here. Right, exactly. Like, still? Yeah. Really? Right. To this day, you still? <laughs> really? Yeah, or, I get that question a lot, man. Any, any other music going on in New Orleans? I'm like, it's a ton of other music happening, all types. You know, yeah. country music, you know, anything. You can hear anything in New Orleans, just oh, like yeah. in New York. But that, that brings me to my next point, man, because you have this record called the 21st Century Trad Band. Yes. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, I can tell you what inspired that title, actually, was, um, and I, I never forget this. Years ago, I was on some, this this is back in the day when you had internet chat rooms. It was pre-Facebook. Facebook, I think, has sort of taken that mantle with comments that people make. But there were these chat rooms, and so they were kind of fun, because, uh, you know, I, I, I used to go in there and start things and start arguments and people would start, you know, make, you know, typing comments. It was kind of fun. But there was one comment in particular that stood out for me because 
I hadn't really heard it. And it was a person that didn't like what happened to the music once my older brothers hit the scene. Okay. With that generation, with not only Wendt and Branford, but mm. musicians like Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison uh, and Wallace Roney and just the scene at the time. Damn, what did he like? You know what? <laughs> yeah. Well, well I, I was able to figure that out. Um, they were, for lack of a better word, um, one way to describe them, and I figured this out years later, they were what I like to call fusion fanboys. Okay. And that is that, that in the 1970s, when you had those bands like the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return of Forever and Weather Report and various other bands, you had people that just loved that music. And they really thought that that's where music should have gone. It's almost like, oh, we have what we need. We're good. This is it. And I'm pretty sure that they thought, oh, swing, yeah, that's the old style. This is the new style. This is the new way to play the music. Okay. And so when you get someone like went and decided, well, you know what? I just want to swing. I am actually want to play more of the music my father played. Then you get some people that are going to say, wait, that's old music. That's the 60s. Why are you doing that? You need to look forward, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so anyway, this person made this statement saying, uh, talking about the 1970s saying, yeah, the 70s guys had their eyes on the future and everything was fine until y'all young lions came and messed it up. <laughs> I said, wow, that's, huh. I just had never heard that. And I'm like, that's, that's interesting. I'll have to think about that when I, but I eventually figured out what they were referring to, um, uh, and at first, the statement didn't make sense to me because the seventies. I'm thinking, well, that music is old. It's, I mean, the, I mean, if if you want to have a fun argument, when I was in high school, you could argue that I was a fusion traditionalist because I wasn't listening to Chick Corea's Electric Band. I was listening to Return of Forever. So those were old records. Right. I mean, so what future? What? No, that's old now. But I eventually realized that for them, the future was rock and funk and straight rhythms. Okay. Not swing, but swing rhythm was old. You know, of course, they'll never admit that. But that, and so when I thought about it, I realized, you know what? All this stuff is actually old. Like, none of it is really new. I mean, like, like Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, that was about 40 some odd years ago. It's old now. Get over it. <laughs> you just stop pretending that it's some new revolutionary. It's old. It's in the past. It's done, folks. <laughs> you know? Like, I realize all this stuff is old. And so I think that it's important to take whatever you learn from whatever that is and you use that in the way you want to use that. Exactly. And that's looking to the future. Exactly. And so, and that's what inspired the title. Now, another thing that inspired it was uh, playing, I, having played like traditional gigs and the roles of the drums in traditional music, which I didn't really start doing, honestly, till like really like later in college, working with Dr. Michael White and uh, then working with eventually the Palm Court Jazz Band with pianist Lars Adegren, but playing like trad style where you're playing, you know, just basic snare drum, bass drum. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now with, with, now with, with Dr. Michael White, he likes it traditional, so you stay there. Okay. Now with Palm Court, you can go to swing. But it's still like pocket. It's still right. it's still there. You know, it's not about subdividing the time and playing all these triplets. It's just it's a straight pocket. Uh, but nonetheless, um, what I realized is that uh, when it came to rhythms, 
I realized that you don't really hear the traditional rhythm in more progressive settings. Like you'll hear Afro-Cuban rhythms in more in more modern composition settings or heck it even popular music or I mean even you'll hear swing use in different ways or you you just see where this is going. You'll hear I've heard Brazilian music used in like in more popular music contexts. Right. But you never hear that with traditional music, with traditional rhythms, like ever. And so uh, uh, I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try this. Uh, and so I did a show once. It was an experimental show that, a, that, that someone put together in New Orleans. And it was me and I think a piano player and this guy that had electronic samples. It was like an electronic music gig. I was playing drums and he had these samples. He also played trumpet. So he may have like some pre-programmed like sounds or, but music, you know, right, like right. pre-programmed music. <clears throat> and I, I, I don't know if somebody recorded, I'd like to hear that, but, and we would play with it. So anyway, I remember one tune, he had some kind of medium rhythm, you know, something. And I was like, I'm gonna try to play trad. <laughs> with this electronic music okay and the guy was floored i mean he was shocked he was like wow <laughs> that rhythm really worked with that music and it worked perfectly man i mean he, he couldn't believe it because he thinks of it in that one vein and so here we are playing this electronic music and i'm using the same rhythm and he couldn't believe it so and and after that i said you know what i'm gonna make that a mission to use that rhythm um in other aspects you know, it doesn't have to be just traditional music. Um, I mean, because it can be used in other ways. In fact, uh, I did this little drum solo, uh, these disciplines, as I like to call them, mm -hmm. these drum solo overdubs. And I did one with the title, what was it? Uh, Discipline Spotted Baby and Zooty at Studio 54. Okay. Now, <laughs> you're, you're wondering, like, okay. what Maybe in the Dodge world? Maybe Dodgy means. Yes, Sims. and Zooty Sing Singleton, studio. yes. Oh, Zooty Singleton at Studio 54. Studio 54, and you're wondering, like, what in the world are you referring to? <laughs> well, for those who don't know, Baby Dodge and Zooty Singleton were drummers with Louis Armstrong and, like, on Hot Fives, Hot Sevens, and Jello Morton, too. Like, you find them on those records. Studio 54 was the the club in the heyday of the 19 late 1970s disco era in New York. Right. I mean, and that's a whole that's a whole other story you'd have to look up. <laughs> uh, so um, you're wondering, like, how do those two relate? Well, at some point, I realized that the trap rhythm and the disco rhythm are actually the same. Here's the but here's how the bass drum is exactly the same. The snare drum in that music is similar to the hi-hat. I was like, they're exactly the same. So it's like, boom, boom, boom. I mean, the difference is that, you know, in the disco music, you add the snare drum. You add that, but that could be snare drum or hi-hat in disco music. And the bass drum is exactly the same. And I said, oh, and I, you know, and that was, but what I realized is that these, these rhythms relate. They're not as separate as, as some people, some may think that they are. And so that I made that admission, like, all right, I'm going to use trad in some other environments. And so when I wrote this tune, I wanted to use, uh, traditional rhythms, but in this other vein where the music isn't traditional at all. Mm. 
And I I remember when I was working on the tune, I did a gig in New Orleans with uh, myself and pianist Austin Johnson, who's on the album, The 21st Century Trad Band. And we were sitting, we were on break uh, at this place. And I was sitting down and I said, yeah, man, I'm working on the new music. Man, I got this new tune, 21st Century Trad Band. And there's a guy sitting next to us and he heard that and he turned around and said, man, I got to hear that based on the title. Because <laughs> I'm sure he had never heard that kind of thing. But that's what it meant, you know, 21st century as in now or the future right. and a trad band. But you using traditional music in different ways. Right. Wow. Let's listen to one of those from that track, from that from that record. Which one you think we should we should dig into? Yeah. Well, just put the title track, the 21st Century Trad Band. So like that's so you you're splitting your time between two instruments, drum set and vibraphone. Correct. And uh I mean, why would you do such a thing? Like that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh I think it's just uh, my love of percussion really. Um when I started to go in that direction when I was uh, say 12, 13, uh my, my father had suggested that I get a set of vibes and, and check that out which he actually does that with all drummers really but that he, he's had students of but um, <clears throat> really when the first instrument that I actually played was violin oh okay that was the first instrument a year later I started on drums and I always played in string orchestras on violin but when I joined an orchestra many years later uh, when I looked over and I see a set of timpani in the orchestra and I didn't know that there were drums or anything and I just hadn't associated that with classical music so the following year I just stopped playing violin and started exploring that and started you know getting lessons with snare drum and which I had had but like timpani and percussion and classical music and so um, and so my, you know my father had recommended that I get that I should get into vibes since, you know, it was a rhythmic, melodic instrument. Uh, and so it started then. Now, now, my practicing wasn't as much as it should have been. It was very off and on. But I did have things that I wanted to play on the instrument. So uh, it wasn't until 2000 that I started to get really serious. And, uh, you know, I, I, I could barely play, but I said, well, I, I got to do something with this instrument. So I started doing these shows in New Orleans at this place. Uh, was Funky Butt. Okay. Yeah, like, 
Yeah, that place, you're talking about a cat. The, the, the owner was a trip, but uh, I mean, we I had a chance to play like every Monday. And, you know, I didn't really care what the money was. I couldn't really play. So, <laughs> so you just, it's just a practice session. Yeah, you just it was just it together, a yeah. place to play, Yeah, which was, which, which was great. And so, uh, and so it started, and though after a while, mm-hmm. like after a few years, I start to hear original tunes, and then I start to hear tunes that I want to cover, and these ideas start coming out. And okay. so... Um, and it's not an easy thing to do, but uh, that's why I started doing it. I mean, I'm still playing uh, drums, and uh, but I think it's just my love for percussion. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Now I'm gonna go to a controversial topic. Sure. <laughs> now there's been this debate within our community mm-hmm. uh, for for us to name our music something other yeah. than jazz. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about that, the new movement to call it BAM? So jazz versus BAM. And for you for you guys who don't know, BAM is uh, an acronym for Black American Music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, I think on the one hand, there are legitimate arguments against the use of the word jazz. And so and I think that those are fair arguments. Now, um, honestly, in terms of what renaming it can do, um, I'm not sure of what the final outcome can be in terms of if that will really change things. I mean, I think that um, I think think if, if if one wants to do that, they definitely have they should definitely pursue that. But I think right now we're at this weird point where music at all isn't really being valued that much. Mm-hmm. So even if you renamed it. I, you know, I don't see that changing some of the issues. I, got I guess that's my point. Like, yeah. like, cause the thought process is okay. You know, the name jazz has got these bad connotations and so forth. Of course, it's funny cause now there are new bad connotations. Oh yeah. What, what are the new ones? See, here's the thing now. See, the reason why there's a controversy about the name is because of the origins of the name, right? you know, coming out of the name jackass. Right. And the fact that ultimately you have people, which of course, the irony is that in classical music, the same thing happened. You know, Jazz Bach didn't call his music Baroque music. Right, of course. He didn't do that. None of the composers were labeling their stuff. So I think that ultimately you have writers and journalists that name this stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Uh, so so that's another point. And so the same thing happens with this music, journalists naming things. And so there's been negative connotations, whether it's people thinking that it's this illegitimate music or or... In the, in the old days, or folks thinking, you know, I mean, really, th- th- this harkens back to the, the, the group, the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Alvin Fielder was a part of that. Yeah, where with, with Lester Bowie and mm-hmm. uh, Roscoe Mitchell, and yeah, uh, of course. where their thing was, you know, we play great black music. Right. And it was a similar premise, uh, because they felt, well, you know what, we have things in black culture that we should codify. Uh, and so, now, I think that and I think it was a similar thing that, you know, they had heard all these negative things with the name jazz. And so they wanted to call it something else. Now, the irony is that now I think that there's a subtle, there's a newer negative, there's newer negatives, but I think it's gone in the extreme opposite direction. Mm. And I believe it's because that it's seen as this, which not that it started here, but I think it's more so I think it's more viewed in this way. It's seen as this highly intellectual music. 
you know, it's not music for children. It's very complex. It's very complicated. It's very, right. you know, that that's like a newer negative. And so folks don't realize that the, the music can be, it can go a lot of different directions. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it can either be a music you sit down and check out, or sometimes there's these grooves that you might want to dance. It can go there. Yeah. But most folks see it as this very complex thing. Now, you know, whether changing the name of that will change that, I don't know. I still mm -hmm. think you're going to have to still face the fact that this is music that is on a very high level. Right. And uh, so, uh, but but nonetheless, I mean, there's, you know, I'm, you know, the hope is that we get to a point where the, where music goes beyond just the name jazz or any of that. That's what we would hope for. That at the that at the end of the day, what we play is on a high level where it goes beyond that. Yeah, that's what you hope for. Right now, it's tricky just because of marketing and right, right. people's identities and right. also people trying to get in on some music that maybe they know nothing about <laughs> and all these other issues. But yeah. the hope is that. You transcend these things. Okay. So, man, you, you have, in your life, you have accomplished something that I think is difficult for a lot of jazz musicians or a lot of people in general, and that's to balance family and business. And as a musician, you know, we're always moving around. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, how do you, like, you know, maybe someone's coming up and they, they want to be the next Jason Marcellus, but uh, they're, they're worried about how they're going to have a family. But you, so how do you do that? How do you balance your family life? Uh, with your work life yeah well first thing it's important to have a, a very supportive wife that's no, <laughs> that that's number one honestly because honestly without without uh, my wife Kaya because I have three daughters and you know they have three you know Marley Mackenzie and Evangeline have three distinctly different personalities <laughs> and that is not easy to deal with yeah uh, so honestly with them but she's you know a very strong person to deal with helping out and i mean without what without that it would be a lot harder mm -hmm. um i mean that i mean that's first and foremost i mean you have to have someone that is supportive and understanding of that and can and because there's a lot that's sacrificed there mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of sacrifice that 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 women and musicians have uh i mean i think about my mother who just passed away uh, I mean, there was a lot she had to sacrifice because she was a really intelligent woman. And I know that the, her vision, honestly, wasn't to have six boys. That's what happened. And, you know, they they ended up successful. But I don't think that that was something she necessarily thought of in advance. Gotcha. Yeah. So there was a lot that. So that's the, the first thing. There's a lot, a lot of sacrifices in that. I think you have to have one that supports that. I think if, if, if they don't, it's going to be very hard. And uh, the second thing is to, uh, is to just be there. I mean, I do travel a lot, but I still communicate with them and talk to them when I can and let them know I'm here, and I'm there. And, you know, like I don't just necessarily just disappear. Right, right. You know, it's, you know, here, there. <laughs> so that, that that's that's another thing, you know, you, you still have to be uh, present even 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 when you're not there. Um, but, uh, and then I would say you have to just organize your time in terms mm -hmm. of time that you need to practice and time, which, you know, and it isn't easy. And sometimes you may not get in as many hours as you'd like, but you still have to organize that time, you know, so, know, okay, well, if, if, you know, I'll have this time myself, I let me do this now. Right. That's, that's the thing, like really organizing the, the time to get done what you need to get done. Yeah. So though, I think those are the key things to those it. Key things. Y'all heard it here first, man. <laughs>
Write that down. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been with Marcus Roberts now for like what, man? How long you been with him? Man, about twenty three years. Twenty three. No, that doesn't that doesn't even exist often in the music business where you stay with one band, one band leader for twenty three years. Uh, yeah. And y'all still like each other. Uh, yeah. You still talk. How, yeah. how do you keep the gig, man? Yeah. Um yeah, with him, I think I've been with him in so long because uh, one thing that's interesting is that in the beginning, Marcus and I actually weren't that close at first. Okay, like, I mean, we weren't like dark or out, right, but we just, just weren't that close. Okay, uh, I mean, and it wasn't until maybe, you know, I mean, we would communicate here and there, but it wasn't until I think maybe like three or four years in when we got closer, like, and what I mean is that, you know, we may get on, like now we may get on the phone and discuss various things going on, whether it's what's happening with politics or what's happening with football or what's happening with, you know, what, whatever. But when I first joined the band, we didn't really do that. I mean, I'd see him and we may discuss some music here and there. And then after that, I'd go off and do my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but now we asked, so it's interesting in the beginning we weren't as close that was a little later uh, but I think I stayed so long because the music kept evolving and so for instance when I first joined um, the, the album that had, he had just released was uh, Gershon for Lovers uh, which I actually I already had Okay, <laughs> I remember when you know I got the call I think my mother just told me like yeah um yeah, you're gonna start doing some gigs with Marcus Roberts. Great, because <laughs> I think he and my father see they okay. used to do duo gigs, ah, okay, and they would okay. talk about it. Okay, because uh, he was interested in having me in the group, but you know, my father said, "Well, just wait till he's ready and right, so right, forth." Right. So, uh, so but anyway, it's like I get in, and he's doing Russian for Lovers, and then we did this real big project involving Symphony Orchestra where he was he did Gershon's Rhapsody in Blue, but he. Uh, you know, he improvised a lot of the condensers and he added rhythm section and it was more of a modern jazz take on it. And so we did that record. Then he did music, this record called Time and Circumstance, which honestly is a record that we're going to re-record because it was really his first attempt at original trio music that features piano along with bass and drums evenly. Got you. And honestly, when we recorded the music, the album had a lot of problems, which I don't have time to get into. And I didn't really fully understand that concept. I mean, I played the piece, but I didn't fully understand what it was he was really going for. And so, so we did that. Uh, but, and, you know, then we would learn standards and we'd work on that. And so there were always things we were working on. And there were always things. And then he even had music for large ensembles, what horn players that he was doing. And so there was a time in, in like, I think after being in the band, what, three years where he decided, you know what, you know, he wanted to really focus on trio and developing a trio sound, but also developing a trio concept. So we would work on not only learning tunes and playing standards and because we weren't that great at playing standards first, we had to really work at that. Uh, But then it became, um, how do we want to break up the music? Mm-hmm. And he would experiment with, all right, you know what, drums, Jason, I want you to lay out here. And I want it just me and bass. Well, let's just have piano and drums, no bass. Let's just things like that. And let's explore dynamics and let's all these things. Um, and we started exploring it. And then the music 
started, and this is just trio. The music started to grow, even though we're, and we had a lot of tunes we were doing. And sometimes it was Gershon, sometimes it was Ellington, sometimes it was Standard, sometimes it was original music. But the, the music, it just kept, it just kept growing. It just kept growing, and that's why I've stayed so long. It just kept, and I liked where it was going, and I liked, especially with, with the trio of music that we would play, um, where a lot of the interaction was like really something else where uh, th there was just a lot of things we would do with interacting with each other in terms of how we would play rhythmically and where we would take the music. And I really enjoyed that a lot. And I said, man, I want to see where this goes. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, there's even a video of, of, of us playing trio. It's at the Burlington Jazz Festival. And that video is a good example of that, where just all the places the music can go. And we played a lot of different standards and tunes and things, but there's so much that, that happens. You know, we don't just play time and he solos. That's not it. Right. I mean, we swing, <laughs> but there's so much there's that goes on. There's still so many things that happen yeah. within the music. Uh, and, and so, and even with, uh, when we started to do Rhapsody in Blue with orchestra, after the record came out, we started, we did a tour uh, but after the tour, he started to do Trion Orchestra, and then that started to change. And then he got recommended to a great conductor uh, by the name of Seiji Ozawa. Ozawa said, yeah, man, uh, I'd like for you to do, you should investigate George Gerson's Concerto in F, which he thought about it, and then he agreed to do it, and we did a, we, and we didn't end up doing that, and we even did a DVD that was live at Berlin with the Berlin Philharmonic, and uh, even with that piece, there was a lot that we had to do to get it ready. Mm -hmm. You know, we all had scores and we were deciding when should we play? When do we not play? Let's play here. Let's not play it there. Or let's have this groove or let's have that groove. And then when we would play it live, we would start changing things. Yeah. Like, oh, let me play this rhythm here instead of this. Oh, let right. me play that there. So that that's so saying all that to say, that's why I'm still there. Okay. It's like the music is still and it's still evolving. It's still fresh. Yeah, still yeah. to this day. Man, I want to talk about the concept of mastery because I, I think it's something that uh, in American culture it, it isn't valued. You know, you know, you know what I mean. Like, I, even for me growing up, like I'd never I was playing drums, but I didn't think about the concept of mastery until I moved to New Orleans, and I'm like in my tw early twenties, and I'm like, oh shit, okay, you have to like master this. This <laughs> you can't just do it. Like, there's levels. Yeah, and, you know what I mean. Yes. And so, like, what does, like, the concept of mastery mean to you? And, and how, did, how did you, uh, because you are a drum master, in my opinion. And so, like, how did you, you know, bring that full circle for yourself? Yeah. Um, first thing I would say is that you are right in terms of mastery is not valued. Unfortunately, uh, you know, there's an, it's, it, there's an expression, and this has a double meaning. There's an expression that's used in the world of politics, you know, whenever if somebody's reporting a story of well, why is it that, that this person is connected to that or why is it that this deal went down and they say, follow the money. Mm. And what that means is who, who's funding that? Who's paying for this? Who's doing that? Where is this money? But the irony is that, unfortunately, that's what America has been doing lately. It's just following the money. Hmm. And so I think that in terms of music, as an example, and it doesn't just happen, it happens in a lot of fields, you know, like what's happening right now in politics, mm -hmm. uh, is that unfortunately, 
what started to happen in music was uh, there became a mindset. I, I think the one sort of death knell to what's really handicapped music is convenience. Okay. I think convenience has been the worst thing for music. Uh, I think that uh, what 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 started to happen, like I to me, I would have to look at the the nineteen eighties uh, as a start, and a great example would be, uh, let's take uh, like in the seventies you had funk bands, right, right, and they would play school dances, right, and I even was talking to Winton about this recently. I told him I said, man, I'm actually envious of you and Branford. Y'all got to play like school dances. And Wenton was telling me about how in the 70s they would have these battle of the bands and you'd have bands coming out of the projects, like dudes who could play in the projects. Like all these, like all these bands and these huge competitions with all these, you know, what what I mean, I actually wouldn't mind seeing like murder rate statistics for then. I bet you it was a lot less. (laughs) Uh, So, but, but, but anyway. All of a sudden, by the time you get to Delphio, who's like like four years younger than them, that was over because uh, schools started hiring DJs mm. and they didn't hire bands anymore. But that's more convenient. And uh, and it's not even saying the slight DJ, but it's like that's more convenient to get one person than to hire a whole band of people. Exactly. Uh, meanwhile, in, in the rap vein, which started to be recorded, I'm pretty sure I have this fictitious and our conversation that happened with the CEO of a record label. And I'm sure this conversation took place where the A&R calls and says, hey, man, I'm checking out this rap group, man. And there's a rapper and some DJs, man. Man, do you know how much money we can save? (laughs) I'm sure that conversation took place. But the thing is, that started happening across the board. Like, that started happening where all of a sudden, like, like, like the, the, the popular music records, like, they're not using as many horns. Oh, we got keyboards. We don't need we don't need horns. Drummers are laughing. <laughs> oh, we got drum machines too. What? <laughs> so it's like all of a sudden everything can be just done. You know, it's convenient. It can right. be done there. And uh, and then you had I think that one of the negative aspects of rap that doesn't really get discussed very much is that um, the fact that you know they didn't need a band. You know. I mean, I think that that's, in a way, why The Roots was successful was because mm-hmm. it was a band. Right. <laughs> you know? And, I mean, which, I mean, it's a good band, but unfortunately, it's kind of sad that that becomes, like, this, that's why it's special. Right. It's like a novelty. Yeah. yeah. And so, I think, so then, but it's more convenient to just sample records than to try to write out charts and <laughs> arrange music. It's more convenient to just sample some records and get some beats together. Uh, and then as time went on, even within that, then it turns into, uh, well, you know, we can fix this track by using auto-tune. Oh, well, good. well, you know what? We don't need people who can sing. Just get auto-tune. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. And so, But I'm saying, like, the cycle just continues and continues and continues. And so what you get are these people that are in music now that know nothing about it. There has to be a tipping point for, for that. At some point, it's going to get to a place where it has to, you know, the pendulum has to swing in the other direction. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I'm not sure where it is. Um, I, I do think that um, we'll have to see. I think that there's a lot of corporate control. Um, but I will admit that uh, I will admit that you do have folks that are out there who are trying to play like bands, even like in the funk aren't even who are trying to do it that aren't really that mainstream because I think more more now people are seeing that 
the the mainstream music is really just not like that that's not really about anything great on any level mm -hmm. uh, it's only about sales and nothing else right i read a story about this one person who got signed i'm not even going to say who they are and it was one of those it was an article written about it and the article pretty much said okay we've hit bottom now like there are two industries this one over here where they sign this person and they know absolutely nothing they're just following clicks and they're just following likes and that's all they're doing they're just following money and that's it but then you have these other people that are trying to do it and they are trying to tour and make music and so yeah. uh, but but I, so anyway I, I went on this long thing to say that that's the opposite of mastery Mm -hmm. and part of why mastery isn't valued is because folks are just following money mm -hmm. uh i'll admit that i'm not the biggest fan for example in this if this relates to mastery of, of what's happening with these black churches what do you mean uh well years ago um there was a gentleman that uh showed me a website and he asked me you ever heard of this website gospelchops.com oh, i was yeah. like <laughs> Like, no, I haven't. Okay. And I saw it, and it was very impressive. These drummers with all this technique, and it was amazing. But then after a few years, I was like, yeah, it's okay. I mean, I've kind of heard it already. Ten years go by, and I'm like, we have a problem. Because the problem was you get all these drummers that sound the same. And they're all, you know, a lot of them are playing in these churches, and they're playing the same way. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of the churches, they kind of just let them do their thing. They're not... See, uh, at some point, I would like to talk to, at some point we will, two drummers that I've worked with and were co collectively known as the New Orleans Groove Masters, Herlin Riley and Shannon Powell. Oh, yeah. See, they, they played in like old church. <laughs> right, right. Old right. church. They didn't play. They were like, no, 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 no. You do this. Right. Well, I'd like to shut up this. <laughs> That's what you're going to play. Yeah. See, they were in old church. Right, right. But like new church, eh. They play these loud beats and, you know, all these fast notes and they just get away with it and nobody says anything. Uh, and so you have all these drummers that are coming out of the same place. Uh, and I think for me, um, and I can say that just even as a teacher, I mean, I've taught some of them, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I, you know, but the thing about it is at the same time, they have these churches, they have money. Right. So, okay, if you're that young student, you can either do a jazz gig, you might make $75, or you can play in the church, make $300, you know? And right. so, yeah. so you know, it becomes uh, Max Rose solo. No, I'm, I'm going to go over to this church, wow. <laughs> you know, and make this money. <laughs> so uh, that, so it, it's like the, almost like this other cycle of folks following money in a different kind of way. Mm, damn. Yeah. No, I mean... <laughs> No, really. It's like that's I mean, now you have like these huge mega churches, which is insane. Uh, and all these, uh, you know, these just churches with like piles of money. And so then you wonder like, OK, are you all really going to church to pray to God? And are you, what are you really going for? Because mm -hmm. you can't help all those people if you're that church. Uh, so, but I bring that up because on it, that doesn't really encourage mastery, honestly. Mm. Now, you can play fast and loud on the kit. I mean, you can do that. I mean, okay. But do you know anything about, for me, mastery is when you've had people that have established um, a standard of greatness. And I'm interested in learning from that and figuring out what it is that I can do with what they've had. 
Mm-hmm. Like when I hear the drumming of Warren Baby Dodds, right. uh, when I hear those recordings, the later recordings, uh, those recordings like uh, where he's playing drum solos, it's the cleanest press roll I've ever heard. It's one of the greatest, most precise drum sounds. And just his interpretation of the rhythm is, is you know, it's almost like something that goes back a thousand years, even though the recording is probably just seven years old. Uh, but when I hear that and when I hear that sound, it's the sound of the resonance of greatness. Mm-hmm. That's all. It's a great sound. That's the kind of sound that I want to have. When I hear someone like a Papa Joe Jones play brushes and you hear those sweeps, you know, this big sound and this strong attack. And then he can play really fast and really in like a really big resonant sound. That is someone who really worked on and spent time in getting a great sound out of the instrument. You know, you know, one that works on the very tedious practice of playing single strokes, you know, for 30 minutes of just at a very slow tempo to refine their sound. Uh, and when I think of the, 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 what I call the Holy Trinity of modern drums, uh, in fact, there's a picture that I believe these gentlemen are in this picture. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen it. It's I saw it on Pinterest or something. Okay. But in the picture, there's Tony Williams here. Oh, yeah, I see this. <laughs> yeah, and there's Elvin Jones, yeah. and there's Art Blakey. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you notice, you notice there's a guy in the middle that's off camera. Who's that? And I think that's Max Roach. Okay. I think I I, I I'm gonna try to confirm that. I, I but there's a guy in a trench coat. He's got glasses. I'm like, wait, that look, but he's like off camera. Right. So you can't really see. I think it's Max. <laughs> it looks like Max. But anyway, to me, I consider them the Holy Trinity of modern drums. Right. And when I hear the four of them, it's mastery of a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. It's mastery of cymbal sound, mastery of drum sound, mastery of solos, mastery of swing, mastery of, uh, and that's when you really work on something. And, you know, mastery doesn't happen overnight. Right. I think that. Another reason that mastery isn't valued now is because uh, we don't have patience in the culture. And unfortunately, that's the, that's the, I think that's one negative aspect of the Internet age. Uh, see, the Internet, uh, you know, in fact, it's funny because Internet now uh, makes you not have patience. Because the thing is, is that see old internet, like the dollar, beep, and, yeah, beep. like old internet, <laughs> beep, beep, <laughs> like when you'd sign on to America Online. Yeah. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> You've got mail, but you had to wait for a minute, right? And, but see now, you just turn it on, and now everything is like really, really fast. And while tech, tech, I think while technology, technological, that's great. Unfortunately, we don't have the patience, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, I think that there were things in, in our lab where you had to have patience. Like, for instance, when you, whenever you had cassette tapes and you pressed play it, you had to wait, you know, and, and then the music would start. Now, if you wanted to fast forward to a song, <laughs> stop, play. No, that's not it. <laughs> I think it's one more. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, right, right. You have to have patience for that. Yeah. You know, and even vinyl, you know, you put it on and... Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're not going to be skipping songs. Right. And you, no, you have to lift up that needle. I mean, you can try it, but that's hard to have to lift up the needle. But with compact discs, you just get a remote control. And click, next. Right, right, done. Click, next. Like, real quick. And so, um, 
I think that ironically that that I think makes us impatient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so with music, uh, you have to have a patient because you're. And I think this is one of the reasons that not a lot of guys uh, work on swing now because it's or just real girl because you have to grow into that. Mm-hmm. Like you know, that's not you don't just decide. Oh yeah, we're gonna no. You have to grow into that, right. and it's gonna take years. It's not gonna happen overnight. It's gonna take years. And I think some lose patience and decide, I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, in fact, there's an interesting uh, discussion, another debate, I'll bring this point up, about the standard song. Okay. And I've heard this discussion for a really long time, such as, uh, you know, the standard songs are from the American Songbook, and it's the early 20th century composers like George Gershwin, Cole Porter, uh, Richard Rodgers, uh, those, Frank Lesser, those songwriters. And so there's discussion of, well... Those are old songs, and you know why don't we have new songs? And you know those songs are they're not really relevant anymore, like they were, or you know all this discussion about you know we should play new tunes, and uh, and I think that's a worthy discussion. But I think there's another underlying reality that nobody wants to talk about, so I'm going to do it right now. Okay, is that standards are very hard to play. Uh, let's see. <laughs> And I'm going to use my family as an example. Okay. Again. See, my father came along when those songs were in films and when they were in musicals and when people would know those songs. And so uh, the musicians were hearing more melodic music. Mm -hmm. You know, like they weren't hearing some of the stuff we have to hear now with rap samples out of tune and two bar (laughs) hooks and melodies that sometimes don't fit the chords right. They didn't have to worry about all that. They were hearing standard tunes or if you heard pop music, it was blues. Right. I mean, like like early rock and roll, that was blues. Uh, So, uh, so, you know, you had people who knew those tunes, knew the musicals it was from. And so, so when you have someone like my father, he's knew a lot of those tunes and he's able to play them. Now, when you get to when in Bradford's generation, th- those tunes weren't popular anymore. Uh, and so they had to work at playing those tunes. Because honestly, Winton's first quintet, like their weaker points, the originals were amazing, but their weaker points were stallet, standards and ballads. Mm-hmm. Ballads weren't very good. Uh, <laughs> and the standards were like, okay. Uh, but... It took them a while to work up to where, you know, after a while they could play things that were themselves. Uh, but I, I now one could argue, why did they learn it? Well, they learned it because that was an important part of the music and it made them better musicians. Uh, and so that's why they did it. And I mean, back then, that was when you still had older musicians that would hear you and say, man, your ballads are sad. <laughs> yeah, you're right. right <laughs> you know, right. so you still have that. But that's. But you become a better musician, so even when you go to write something that's not a, that's in a completely different vein, that understanding of melody is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, even from my own experience earlier, I mentioned working with Marcus Robertson playing standards. I remember when we first started doing it, it was sad. There was just nothing going on. We were just playing a tune. <laughs> right. We weren't bringing our own identity to the tune. We were just mm-hmm. playing a tune. But we had to work at it. It wasn't easy. You know, we had to like we'd learn arrangements or play it or listen well we like this or we don't like that or well just try playing the the swing like this and and it took man like it wasn't until four to five years in when we started to become comfortable to play oh okay where it sounded like decent and then we can play ourselves right and so but that's another part of mastery 
when you work on something and you keep working on it and then after years and you're at this level that's a great level that's another part of mastery and i think that that's the underlying reason why some don't want to play a lot of those old standards mm -hmm. because it's just not easy yeah. it's just not yeah so yeah but ultimately i think mastery for me is about greatness and achieving a level of greatness and really just bringing people to a better state because mm -hmm. if a person uh you know hears something playing on a high level i mean some may just get intimidated and run away but most will appreciate it and say yeah that was then yeah. that's why we do this yeah i want to um talk you know i'm we're coming to the end. i got a few more questions but yeah no go ahead okay i want to just talk about longevity in the music business you know what i mean like what mm -hmm. is the secret I, honestly i ask every like every older musician i run into like what is the secret to longevity uh in our industry mm -hmm. like how does how do we how do we do it a lot of guys give up and go home and become lawyers and shit. No, no, oh yeah yeah <laughs> that that that's true which you know and you've even had guys even then yeah. you know so it hasn't just started here um I, I really, I think the first thing, man, honestly, is just belief. I really think that's number one. I think that if you don't really believe in it, you just shouldn't do it. Um, I mean, you know, I'm reminded of another story that my father told me about somebody. I think they were at one of those, like, conferences, like AJA. I think it's JN now, but I think it was one of those conferences, educational conferences, where this gentleman he knew said, asked him something. I don't know. It was something about... Something about maybe teaching, or if he had something, he asked him. Okay. And he said, Oh, yeah. And he answers the question. And then the guy tells him, Man, if I would have known it was going to be like this, man, I wouldn't have fooled with no music. Damn. And yeah. And <laughs> I just, you know, I, I don't know what that meant. I mean, a lot of times I think guys see the fun part of it and then they're not seeing these other sides of it. Right. Uh, but I think that. I th but I'm saying, but, but I think if you believe in the music, that doesn't really matter. If you really believe in it. Now, uh, you know, sometimes you do have to be realistic about your goals. I mean, there's one musician that I know of that did get a record contract in the early 90s. Uh, but then all of a sudden, after a few years, he goes back to school. And the guy at the school like, wait, why is he here? What is he doing? Well, he got his degree and then he ended up teaching. Wow. And I guess he, I'm not sure how, but I guess he saw the writing on the wall and said, you know what, and you know, this may be going on on the road as a leader isn't going to work out. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there is being realistic, but I think belief is very important because, I mean, my father had years where he was struggling and was almost considering like just getting just a regular job and just not wow. playing. Wow. Oh yeah, no, it was rough. Wow. And of course, you know, his wife, Dolores, my mother was like, no. You play it, that's what you should do. She supported it. And so um, he kept going with it. So I think that one, I mean, there's obviously being excellent at it, but, you know, unfortunately, that's not necessarily a guarantee. Right. But I would say but the belief is the most important. When you really believe in something, then you want to play it on the highest level. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, like when you can sort of um, really survive after many years. That's why you've had a lot of guys that will be successful even years later, right. more so than they may have been before. Yeah. But I, for me, that's it. Okay. I mean, I think it's important to believe and you try to 
play on the highest level that uh, that you can. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, first and foremost. Right. So this is the last question, man. And mm-hmm. I ask every, you probably know you listen to the podcast, but I ask everybody who comes on the podcast this question. And the question is, what are the three things that you're most thankful for? Three things I'm most thankful for. Um, one is family, my own, and the ones that you and the one I grew up with, because uh, I was very. I consider myself a privileged musician, honestly. Uh, second was uh, the, the, just the gift to play music and to create music. Uh, I think that, and I think the third for me would be the ability to pass that on. Uh, to the next generation. I think it's a very important thing, uh, not just to think of yourself, but to try to think of others that could play music, whatever it is they want to play. Yeah. I think it's very important to uh, to things that you've learned, things from the past. I feel the next generation should learn those same things. So I think, yeah, those would be the three things for me that I would be thankful for. Okay. Man, anything you want to plug before we get out of here? Um... I will say that um, I do have a new record, depending on when this airs, that will be released in January uh, of, uh, of 2018 uh, called uh, uh, Melody Reimagined, okay. book one. Okay. And it's original music. It's some planned vibes, and it's original music that I wrote based on the chord progressions to uh, various pieces. Various pieces. And, and they can just go on your website, Jason Marcellus. Dot com. Com. Yeah. Yes, in fact, uh, now that you've mentioned that, uh, we're redesigning it right now. Okay. I have to get back with the webmaster and approve it. But yeah, they, they, yes, there will be uh, links and notes about it and places to go to buy it once it's available. Okay, now what's your phone number and social security now? Um, <laughs> social is, <laughs> and also my credit card number is. <laughs> oh, man. All right, man. Thanks for coming on the Working Arts Project, bro. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. I can't thank you guys enough for listening to this podcast and going on this journey with me week after week. But before you go, I would like to ask you to do a few more things. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Find out more at secondlinearts.org.